0: To all of you who are joining us online this morning, uh, whether it's on YouTube or Facebook, I want to thank you for um, opening up our page and checking out our sermon, our today's sermon. Um, We hope that you're blessed. Um, I've been praying for you all week, and um, I really hope that the Lord has a, a word for you this morning. Um, we are Fresh Vision Church, and we are located in El Paso, Texas. If you're in the area, we are on the corner of Hondo Pass and Gateway South in the north, in the northeast. So um, we invite you to come and check us out. Um, visit us sometime. We want to we meet you, um, and we want to bless you as well. So um, come on by whenever you get the opportunity. I also want to invite you to go check out our website, Um, and that is at fvcelp.org. And once you go to our homepage, you'll find the links, um, um, all the information you need about our church, and uh, you know what we believe, what we're all about, our COVID guidelines, um, maybe a little something about myself how this church got started. Um, And we are, just to back up just a little bit, we are a Calvary Chapel church uh, here again in the Northeast. So um, if you're familiar with that, again, you know that what our style is here. Um, In our website also, there is, um, the Lord has put it in your heart to to give. There is a a PayPal link there where you can uh, maybe give a tithe or an offering or a special gift, anything that's in your heart. Um, Again, we're not making that an obligation. We want you to give out of the joy of your heart. And for those of you here too, um, I want to reiterate that, that uh, we just have a box in the back, we don't have a bag that we pass around or a basket or anything like that. Um, I definitely believe that, you know, um, the Lord uh, loves a cheerful giver. So uh, the Bible tells us that. Um, so, for those of you watching, if you don't feel comfortable with doing PayPal, you can also uh, send us uh, anything you want through the mail. And our address there is on a website. But if you want it, I can give it to you. It's 4242 Hondo Pass Drive, Suite 101, El Paso, Texas, 79904. I think that's it. So, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, Get started with today's message, and we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter two this this morning. Habakkuk chapter two. This morning, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week in chapter two. Now, in case you weren't with us or you didn't watch last week's message, um, we covered the second. We began to cover the second dialogue that Habakkuk had with God. Uh, and the beginning of God's subsequent response. And so, what we're going to be seeing here this morning is the remainder of that, of God's response in chapter two. And uh, these are Yahweh's, these are God's words for the future survivors regarding their violent oppressors. And to just give you guys a little bit of a preview to be specific here, the Lord in these verses that we're going to be covering will indict the Chaldeans. Thank you. The Lord will indict the Chaldeans for their extortion, their unjust wealth, their bloodshed, their drunkenness, and enticing to drunkenness or In other words, enticing others to get drunk and also their idolatry. God here will be letting Habakkuk know that in due time, yes, there will be consequences of the wicked. So as we cover verses 6 through 12, or 6 through 20, I'm sorry, keep in mind that Although God is speaking, these words will be spoken by the survivors to their captors. And so what I hope uh, today's message will show you is that in spite of how bad things look, in spite of how bad things are in your life personally or also even nationally, with everything that's been going on in our country these past few months, I hope this passage here will show you that God is still in his throne. And one day soon, he will permanently deal with sin and the perpetrators of wickedness. And at that time, as believers, those of us who are born again, we will be witnesses of the consequences of wickedness. And again, that's what I titled today's message. So before we get into God's word, let's pray and ask him to speak to us this morning. Lord, thank you for this morning. May your word that I read... May it go out there powerfully. May those who are here receive it. May it um, penetrate their hearts, Lord, and their minds. For those who are watching, may it also uh, may they receive it, Lord, um, with a glad heart. And may they also may you also speak to them in a strong and powerful way, Lord. Show us your glory. Show us your magnificence, Lord. We want to know more of you. We want to fall more in love with you. So I pray that everybody will, that's watching, that's here watching, listening, will remove all distractions and that they right now that they will sit at your feet and hear your word. Thank you for this day, and thank you for this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Habakkuk chapter 2. and We're going to be beginning in verse 6. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6. And the word of God says, Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise? And those who disturb you wake up? Then... You will become spoil for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of the human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house, to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self, for the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies, of the people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory and the water covers the sea. Now, here we begin the five woes that the Lord gives to the violent Chaldeans. Um, What we just read here were the first three. And these, again, are the Lord's indictments against the Chaldeans for their endless appetite for conquest, their greed and pride, and their enrichment through bloodshed. But before we really get examine this woe more carefully, the beginning of verse six is central. To Yahweh's response. Now, I don't want to confuse you. When I say Yahweh, you know, in the Old Testament, I am referring, uh, it is referring to God. So I'll be using God and Yahweh interchangeably. Also, um, when I speak of the Chaldeans and Babylonians, it's the same people. So again, I may be using um, either Chaldeans or Babylonians throughout this message. That's just a you know, again, I, I, I don't want to confuse you with that, so I just want you to know that. But here, again, this verse, this first verse that we just read is, is central to Yahweh's response to Habakkuk's question about the wicked enduring. You see there, God informed Habakkuk that all those nations conquered and plundered by the Chaldeans would in due time witness the fall of their conqueror. At that time, they'd sing a taunt against them with mockery and riddles about them. So these five woes is a prophetic song of lament that they will say to give them hope, to give the survivors hope of what to expect in a future time. Furthermore, it also provides Yahweh's answer to the question, to Habakkuk's question that he essentially asked back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, which was basically what about the joy and prosperity of the wicked? I draw idolatrous and violent. Well, the first woe that we see here is against the Chaldeans' aggressive lust for empire or selfish ambition and speaks of the way they'll be plundered by the survivors. In particular, him who amasses what is not his and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. In other words, those who have become wealthy by extortion, by gathering up, by collecting for themselves stolen goods. Their crimes are described more fully at the end of verse eight, because of human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. So their violence wasn't just limited to to just people but it also extended to land the lands of others that survived by them and the cities that supported life god here warns them that the real owners of this wealth will suddenly arise to condemn them and collect what is due they will become, the Chaldeans will become spoil for them. He says in verse 8, Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you. The taunt given by Yahweh teaches us something wise about the foolishness of powerful people with selfish ambitions. And it's this, unjust power that is used to create wealth will be used to undo that wealth. And we can see several examples in the news today, whether it's on you know Twitter or Facebook or one of the news websites. We hear about politicians who are getting arrested for embezzling, for extortion, for stealing and, you know, taxpayer money, um, you know, for their greed for money and power. And when it comes to ambitions, it's important to remember a couple things. Of itself, ambition can be a good thing. For instance, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15 verse 20, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard. This here was a holy ambition that God honored. Paul also wrote, and this is in the NASB, uh, he wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter five verse nine, therefore we also as our ambition to be pleasing to him. And this kind of an ambition is one that we should all imitate. Thomas Jefferson once said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. So there can be a good type of ambition. However, ambition can also be a bad thing, especially if it's selfish ambition. This kind of ambition motivates people to be greedy, self-seeking, and abusive. It says this in James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above but is earthly unspiritual demonic for where there is envy and selfish ambition there is disorder and every evil practice as christians as believers we must always make an effort to check our own motivations for the decisions, when it comes to decisions we make. We must ask ourselves, am I doing this for the glory of God? Or am I doing this for my own glory, to make a name for myself, to elevate myself? And again, this could be true, not just here in the church, but outside the East church walls as well. Because see, the Bible tells us to do all things for the glory of God. So if you're seeking your own glory, you're seeking, you know, you have your own selfish ambitions, you know, it's, it's not what God desires of you. And that's not what he wants from you. He wants you to do all things for his glory. I might butcher this last name, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I had it last time yesterday, but I messed it up today. Well, anyways, he wrote this, power is a poison, well known for thousands of years. If only no one were ever able to acquire material power over others but to the human being who has faith in some force that holds dominion over all of us and who is therefore conscious of his own limitations, power is not necessarily fatal. But for those, however, who are unaware of any higher power, it's a deadly poison. For them, there is no antidote. So again, this first woe has to deal, has, is dealing with pride, greed and pride. The second woe mentioned in verses 9 through 11 is against Nebuchadnezzar for his greed and pride. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, there are three ways to get wealthy, to get wealth. You can work for it. Steal it, or receive it as a gift. Now I think all of us know that stealing is wrong because the eighth commandment says, "Thou shalt not steal. Well, this is what Nebuchadnezzar was did when he dishonestly took what wasn't his in order to make wealth, not only for his house but for to also build an empire that glorified himself. A home and empire, he thought, that would be safe, like a nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. Of course, this was a false security because no individual or nation can build walls high enough to keep God out. Now we know that this is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon, or, or uh, the Chaldean Empire. In Daniel chapter five, in in uh, Daniel chapter four, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar went insane. So he was definitely humbled. He couldn't escape. God. He couldn't escape the grasp of disaster. And we also, and in the following chapter, in Daniel chapter 5, the nation of, of Babylon, the Chaldean Empire, was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Well, because of his pride, because pride would blind him, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't able to see that he had planned, that he planned shame for his house and nation by wiping out many peoples. And in doing so, he failed to realize that he was sinning against himself. Now what this means here, sinning against himself, was you got to understand that Nebuchadnezzar had basically set himself up as a god. And so as a god you have certain standards that you have, not just for yourself, but for the people to follow. Well, as he was plotting and he was doing these building, having these building projects and, and destroying people, um, wiping out peoples, he was missing his own high standards that he had set for himself. And his people. He was sinning. In in that sense, he was sinning against himself. But not just that, but he was also sinning against God. The one and true living God. Now, this woe ends in verse 11 with the consequences of his greed and pride. The house itself would testify against them. And echo the shame of the ruined builder. Says there, the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork after the builder is, has left, has, has gone and, and died. You see, a house built by the cries of tortured bodies and silent skeletons will eventually become unhab, unhabitable. habitable. They will be standing reminders to the survivors of the shame and the sin by which they were built. In the New Testament, James used a similar image when he warned the rich that the wages that they owed their laborers would witness against them at the judgment. When it comes to read... And the greedy, it's not hard to notice it around us. We mentioned a few examples, uh, a couple examples earlier, but maybe you've seen it maybe closer to home in your jobs, maybe you know, wherever you may be. There's just, people you know, you've seen the greed of people and what they're capable of. Paul told Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 9, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmless desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are greedy if you've suffered as a result of greed someone else's greed rest assured and know that they will suffer the consequences if not here in this life but in the next they will suffer the consequences for their sin as will the prideful C.S. Lewis wrote it was through pride that the devil came became the devil Pride leads to every other vice. It is completely anti, an anti-God state of mind. Pride is one of those sins that can creep up really easy in the life of a believer. So again, you must be careful about that. You must check yourself when it comes to that. And I'm sure, again, I mean, like, I, like with greed you've seen pride do some really horrible things in the lives of people maybe you've seen it in your li- in your own life as as a believer as a christian you know pride has kept you from doing certain things or it's kept you away from ministry or has kept you from really just spending time with, with the lord again you know, we are not to be prideful the lord calls us to be humble you know to remove that pride and you know just walk humbly with him and and serve others you know don't have the mentality of others serving you but have that heart of serving others so again be careful with those two pride and greed the third, woe, the third woe against the king was for his exploitation of people and violent tactics. The plunder mentioned in the first woe, in verses 6 through 8, and the pride exposed in the second woe, in verses 9 through 11, were both fed by the sin-sick perversity revealed in this third woe. It was as though the stones and timbers of Babylon's vast building projects took up a a song here, began to sing a song here. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. The Chaldean Empire was built by the blood and sweat of prisoners of war and slave labor. They exploited innocent, they exploited the innocent and used murder, bloodshed, oppression, and tyranny as tools to accomplish this. For the first time, however, Yahweh is mentioned by name and declared that their ambitious work had been all done in vain. Everything they had built. And all that they had accomplished through their exploitation and violence would be a waste. It would be as if you had all lifetimes, a lifetime of wages that you earned was thrown into a fire pit or running a marathon with no prize at the end for coming in first would be a waste. Historians tell us that the Babylonians, that the the Babylonian cities or city, the capital city was an architectural marvel and all other cities at that time paled in comparison. However, today it's all gone. Nothing is left. The only way to know or to see what it was like is to visit a museum or by reading a history book. Now, in contrast, in contrast to the shame and infamy of Babylon or the Chaldeans, God promised that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory As the water covers the sea. So, unlike the temporal glory of the Chaldeans, the glory of the Lord will abide forever. Without a doubt, uh, the Lord was glorified when Babylon fell before their enemies in 539 BC. And in the future, God will be glorified when the Babylon of the last days, the one that Revelations chapter 17 and 18 tells us about, when that Babylon is destroyed. However, it won't be until Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. It will be filled with his glory. The jagged rocks of injustice and the slimy seaweed of sin will be covered with the smooth surface of God's righteousness. The fall of Babylon the Great is just a reminder. It reminds us that what man builds Without God, it can never last. The exploiter will eventually lose everything, and man's utopias will turn out to be disasters. We can't exploit people that are made in the image of God and expect to escape God's judgment. It may take time, but eventually his judgment falls. All right, so those are the first three woes. And I want us to turn back to our Bibles and read the next two, the last two woes of this chapter. So uh, we'll be, if you have your Bibles again, we'll be picking up in verse 15. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Woe to him who gives his neighbor drink, pouring out your wrath, and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against the land, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies, for the one who crafts his shape, trusts in it, and makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to the wood, wake up, or to the mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the, old, let the whole earth be silent. In his presence. And again, here we have the last two woes. The fourth woe is against Nebuchadnezzar for taking savage delight in corrupting other nations, for state shamelessness, and for his destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. In this woe, we're told that God would bring these experiences on those who entice others to drunkenness in order to take advantage of them. The focus here is on the inhumanity and the indignity of of the conqueror to his subjects, and the image is meant to be shocking the Chaldean emperor is pictured as a drunkard giving his neighbors drink to intoxicate in order to look at their nakedness and expose their victims and to treat them shamefully, if you know what I mean. Their repulsive actions, though, wasn't just limited to how he treated others how he treated others disgracefully. It also extended to how his empire corrupted other nations by pouring out his wrath. In other words, the Chaldeans poured out more than just intoxicating drink, more than just intoxicating wine. With the wine, they mixed wrath a word related to heat, signifying any violent passion. The image here is that of a mixed drink of hate and passion being poured out together. Thus, the nations that were enticed or more often forced to partake in this poisonous mix Fell like drunks exposing themselves, which again allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean Empire to treat that nation shamefully. Those who gloated over the shame over the shame of their drunken victims would someday be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You see, just as they had caused others to drink and be shamefully exposed, one day the tables would turn and they'd pass out drunk and expose their uncircumcision. During those days, to be uncircumcised was, to the Jew, was to be scorned, to be seen, to be treated disrespectfully. They would treat anybody who was uncircumcised disrespectfully. They just didn't want anything to do with them. They, thought they were just were disgusting people. It also says in verse 16 that the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. What does this mean? Well, according to Jeremiah, chapter 51, verse 7, Babylon had been the, a golden cup in God's hands, and he had used it to chase in other nations. Now, though, God will give them the same cup to drink and chasten it. The violence and bloodshed it did to others would be reciprocated. As it had destroyed the lands of other nations, so its land would be devastated. The end result will be that utter disgrace will cover their glory. And again, here, you know what that pictures you know what that that. What uh, this has, this verse has in mind. It's a picture of a repulsive drunk vomiting all over himself. Now, verse 17 tells us two causes of their same shameful condition. First one was for their violence against Lebanon. Lebanon, a nation north of Israel, was known for its abundance of cedar trees and wild animals. During the Chaldean conquest, its cedar forests were destroyed. And the animals living in that forest were slaughtered. We're, again, we're not just talking about hunting here. This was A deliberate, mean kind of slaughter of animals that were living in the forest. It was just ugly, evil type of slaughter against these animals. And the fact that it's mentioned here shows us the Lord cares for all of his creation, not just us humans, but he does care about the trees, the animals everything that he created. So as stewards, we must have that same heart too. So what the Lord is saying here is that all the violence done to the forest would overwhelm them and the destruction of the animals would terrify them. And the second reason which they were charged with, which they were also charged with in verses 8 and 12, was because of their human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. Lebanon is naked of trees. The cities are naked of people, and the land is naked of animals. Yahweh's beloved creation has been assaulted, and together they will bring the Chaldeans from apparent world glory, to everlasting shame. The fifth and final woe condemns the king for his nation's idolatry in a very sarcastic manner. The final stanza of this song, however, doesn't open with the ominous words, woe. Rather, it begins with an honest question. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? The obvious answer is that it's useless. Because no matter what it's shaped to or how pretty that image looks, it's only a cast image made. Blocks of wood or even metal. To trust in such an idol was to trust in a teacher of lies. For it deceives people into thinking that can help them. Furthermore, those who create these lifeless idols are really only making dumb objects that cannot speak. And by doing so, they're actually ignoring the creator who created everything on earth. And so they're essentially really trusting in themselves. So you see, an idol in all reality is nothing more than a silent extension of the person who's trusting in themselves to figure it all out. In verse 19 God exposes expresses his condemnation to the insidious sin of idolatry woe to him who says to the wood wake up or to the or to the mute stone come alive God again asks can it teach and the obvious answer is no of course not even if it's plated with gold and silver it's still just a lifeless object with no breath in it at all. Now, I think that you could also agree with me that for the most part, the majority of Americans aren't worshiping carved images that represent things of nature. But if the definition of idol here is correct, modern society does have its idols just as the Babylonians did. They just look different. For instance, millions of people had made famous people as their idols. They worship politicians, athletes, wealthy tech giants, entertainers, dead and alive. I mean, Elvis still has followers, Marilyn Monroe still has followers. You can think of any dead. Entertainer rap sing, you know, rappers, singers, rock stars, they still have followers. And yes, even celebrity pastors, people may also worship and serve mad-made man-made things like cars, houses, jewelry, and technology. Now, while I think all of us can appreciate beautiful and useful things. It's one thing to own them and quite something else to be owned by them. Albert Schweitzer said, anything you have that you cannot give away, you do not really own. It owns you. Social position can be an idol. And so can a person's career. For many others, their idol is their appetite and they only live to experience carnal pleasures for the flesh 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 also tells us that intellectual ability can be a terrible idol as people worship their IQ instead of submit to God's word so do people worship idols today absolutely and one day they too will face the consequences of their idolatry if they don't repent of their sin. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 tells us that the fate of idolatries of idolaters is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the only way they'll be able to escape this punishment is by worshiping the one and only true living God before they die. Who Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 describes as the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is, who was, and is to come. As Christians, as a Christian you must also be you must also constantly examine yourself to make sure that idols aren't creeping into your own life. A good way to tell if you're, if that's happening is to ask yourself honestly, is someone or something else becoming more important to you than spending time with God? being in fellowship with your brothers and sisters is that thing keeping you from reading your bible from worshiping god spending time in devotion if there is let me remind you what it says in exodus chapter 20 verse 5 do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god so if you discover there is remove, remove it immediately yes it might sting and hurt but in the long run it'll benefit you tremendously first peter 5:10 says the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. God then ended his reply to Habakkuk in verse 20 by assuring him that the Lord is in his holy temple. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a God that's in a temple that he created, where he teaches truth, where he's speaking from. Right now he's in a temple where he is alive, where he is awake and where he gives guidance from. And as the one who gives breath, the breath of life in that very same temple, then let the whole earth be silent in his presence. So as doubt continues to persist today as to who the next president is going to be, and as we look around the world, as we look at the world around us and see all the chaos, confusion, and anxiety, we shouldn't complain against God or question what he's doing Like faithful servants, we must stand and listen for his commands just as he told us to do in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. So at this point, the dialogue with Yahweh is over. He, Yahweh, has responded to, though not directly answered, Habakkuk's questions about the suffering of the righteous and the success of the wicked. For Habakkuk, the message was clear. Stop complaining. Stop doubting. God is not indifferent to sin. He is not insensitive to suffering. The Lord is neither inactive or impervious. He is in control. In his perfect time, God will accomplish his divine purposes. Habakkuk was to stand in humble silence, a hush, hushed expectancy of God's intervention. Now, the book doesn't end with the completion of the dialogue, but it concludes with a prophet's song of praise, which we'll look at next week. But seeing the vision of God and hearing the voice of God made a tremendous difference in Habakkuk's life. As he grasped the significance of the three assurances God gave him, he was transformed from being a warrior, a warrior, not a warrior, a warrior and a watcher to being a worshiper. Again, those Those assurances are for this. The first assurance was found in verse 4 that focused on God's grace. The second was on God's glory in verse 14. And the third in verse 20, which focused on God's government. God is on his throne, and he has everything under control. These are assurances that we as Christians can and must hold on to. Church, Habakkuk chapter two provides practical help for times when our foundations are shaken, when we receive bad news that someone we love will soon die, when our political and social institutions seem to be on the verge of collapse, or when someone that you looked up to in the church falls when they fall from grace because of sin or some other corruption. During those times, our personal world can be shaken to the core. So in those times, God shows us here in this chapter to seek him, wait on him, allow him to speak to you plainly through his word and worship him even in silence. The person who lives by faith trusts in the promises, in the promise that one day, as the water covers the sea, the glory of God will fill the earth. And the fullest manifestation of that glory is possible in the present because of Jesus. It says in Second Corinthians chapter four verse six, for God who said, Let shine let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And I'll end there. But again, God will deal with the wicked. The consequent, there will be consequences of the wicked. You may not see it here now, but there will be. I trust him. It will happen. Thank you for, for, again, clicking our video, for watching this. I hope that you will, and pray that you will share it because there may be someone out there that needs to hear it. So, Until next time, until next week, goodbye and farewell.